Today's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 3, 1 and 2, and then verses 13 to 24. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And from verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a fellow believer is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong in the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who keep his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, for many of us who have moved to a new city, I think that's a lot of the experience for us here in D.C. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember a point when your new home or your new neighborhood became and felt like home to you? Yeah? For me, there's a few signs. I think first of all is that I don't have to turn on my GPS to get home, to find, to find a grocery store, or just to navigate through the neighborhood. A second th- t- when, thing when I feel home is, is when I walk into my house and I recognize the smell. It's like, Oh, this is my home. And there's also the sense of familiarity when I climb into bed and I pull up the covers to my chin and I feel like this is, this is it. This is my place. Because it's never the same if you're staying in a hotel or or somewhere else. And then when you wake up in the morning and you look at the ceiling and you're like, oh, you don't feel like, whoa, where am I? Things feel familiar in the house. You can actually walk around at, at night in the dark without hurting yourself. And even getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night without turning on the lights, because that sucks, right? And without making a mess in the bathroom floor. That's when you feel you're at home. You don't have to think about what you're doing. Everything feels at rest. Not if, 
This is true for you. You know, we have places where we feel uh, comfortable and can just be ourselves. But we also have relationships where we can be comfortable and be ourselves. We don't have to be on guard, wondering if we're going to be misunderstood or misinterpreted. And we don't have to be extra careful in, to, to read all the verbal and nonverbal cues uh, with the person we're talking with. Conversation just flows, and the other person you're talking to just gets it. You're at ease. You're at rest. And you might even say that it's a beloved rest because we treasure it and we don't recognize it until it's gone from us. You know, as our, we continue in our beloved message series on the, the first letter of John, we turn our attention to chapter 3. And the Apostle John unpacks how God's children experience a beloved rest with God. And when we, embra- when we uh, embrace who we are as God's children, we experience a special kind of rest that can inform many parts of our lives in our human experience. You know, as God's children, we can experience rest, at, be at rest as God's children. We can be at rest amongst hatred and exclusion. We can be at rest in God's presence. And we can be at rest in to love, be at rest to love. You know, John opens a chapter with a glowing reminder of what it means to be God's children. And listen to the love and the joy exuding from the, the words of John in the, in the message translation. Uh, Byron read from us from a different translation, but hear this. He says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. John's saying, don't you see how much God loves you? Can you believe it? It's incredible. We actually get to be called children of the living God. Or in millennial speak, it's like, like, OMG, can you believe that we are God's children? I can't even. John's likely writing this at an elderly age. Okay, I just aged myself, right? He's not just in an early honeymoon phase of the infatuation in this relationship with God. He's weathered persecution, he's been imprisoned, and he has childlike wonder towards God's love for him. What's the secret for John? He's seen the beauty of what it means to be called children of God. You see, to be called children of God isn't just a label like calling Uh, a horse-like creature that has black and white stripes, like you call that a zebra, right? To be called children of God is an immense privilege because it is a status change. It's a fundamental change of who we are made by a deliberate action and initiative of the living God. To be called children of God is is therefore an immense privilege. To those who are responding to God's initiative, they get to be called God's family. John writes in his gospel, not not in this letter, but he writes another gospel in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, your status as God's child is not an accident. 
It's not unplanned. It's not even based on how smart you are or how spiritual you are. It's simply the result of being decidedly and deliberately loved by God. When we respond to God's initiative in receiving Jesus and believing what Jesus has done on the cross, we are given the right to become children of God. That's what it means to be called children of God. It's not just a label. It's a status change made possible by God. The flip side to this truth is that every single human, though we are loved by God, we are made in God's image, not every single human gets to enjoy the full benefits of being called children of God. Only those who respond to Jesus have this opportunity. And to know that you are God's child because you have responded in faith to the person and work of a crucified and resurrected Jesus gives us tremendous rest. Why? Because it means that our ability to remain in God's family, to remain as a child of God, doesn't depend on us. God's love doesn't depend on our behavior or our religious practices. Our status as God's child doesn't change because of what we do. It's all on God. In Christ. And that's tremendously freeing. So, if we rest in this truth, then we can find rest in many other parts of our lives, and one of them being finding rest amongst hatred and exclusion. Note what I didn't say. God's children aren't at rest from hatred, but amongst hatred and exclusion. John says it at the end of verse 1, where he says, the world does not know us. In making a distinction between those who are God's children and those who are not, John acknowledges that there is this built-in friction between those who know and serve Jesus and those who do not. And in other words, God's children, though deeply loved by God, are not immune to difficult situations because they live in a world that is affected by sin and fundamentally, in many ways, opposed to who God is. In this letter, John uses the word world 23 times. And its meaning depends on the context. Sometimes John means, uh, refers to the world as hum the human race, all of the human race. Other times he refers, uses the world as all of the created order, everything in the universe. But here in the context of chapter 3, the world, it suggests that the world is understood specifically as those who do not believe in Jesus those who have not acknowledged who Jesus is. And such people are opposed, what John, uh, what John says, to God. Throughout this particular chapter, John distinguishes his hearers from those who are not only not God's children, but what he calls children of the devil, those who are opposed to God's work. And in, as we've been learning in the series, in particular, this, uh, the particular evil in John's eyes is this teaching of Gnosticism that denied the incarnation of Jesus, denied the reality of Jesus, and denied that God could be fully known. Well, you might ask, well, how do I really know that I can be at rest as God's child with all of this stuff that's going on around in my life? I can't seem to get on top of it. My relationships are difficult. My health never seems to get better. My prayers, even though I'm calling out to God, never seem to be answered. I feel so alone in this. You ever feel like that sometimes in your life? Maybe that's why you're here today, and you're welcome. 
That's the real deal. It's something that we all experience at some points in our lives. And sometimes we need brothers and sisters to remind us that God loves us. And sometimes we need our siblings in Christ to speak things into our lives in faith for us when we can't see it for ourselves. A couple weeks ago, we gathered to share stories of our dear friend, Russell Edgerton, who served as a caretaker here for over 15 years before he passed away earlier this year. As we recalled stories, people shared their memories of how Russell always said to them, oh, I'm not worried about him. God's got him. I'm not worried about her. God's got her. Russell had this foresight and this faith to see what couldn't be seen at the moment simply because he trusted God as father and he trusted he was at rest as a child of God. His life demonstrated what it looked like to be at rest. And even when he had a stroke and fell down the stairs in the office area, doctors told his family that to to prepare for a chronic disability, he simply trusted and prayed to God with this deep assurance, I'm at rest. And often it was his faith that carried many of us through difficult circumstances. As he prayed here every week, he would want to come to church to work, but he would kneel here at this altar to lift up people in prayer. That was what it looks like to be at rest as a child of God. Because he knew that as a child of God, you, he wasn't immune, and other children wouldn't be, would be immune to, would not be immune to difficulty. But he expected God to show up through any difficulty that might come our way. And he demonstrated this deep love for others because of that rest. To be a child of God doesn't give you a cloak of immunity from all hardship like a Marvel superhero. Instead, knowing that we are children of God means that we can be at rest in the midst of and in spite of adverse circumstances. We may worry, we may grieve, we may be anxious, but God's children, and God's children may even experience persecution because of what we believe. The reality is, is we're going to do things differently because we've come to know this God that loves us. But when we remember that we are God's children, we remember we trust in a resurrected Savior. And therefore, we will not experience ultimate exclusion and loss of love. To be at rest as God's child means we can be at rest amongst hatred and exclusion and hardship that comes from outside of us. But it also means that we can be at rest in God's presence from within. In the last part of the chapter, John turns his attention to something that we will all have to face. God is loving, but he isn't only loving, at least the way that we think God should love. God is also holy and other than. God isn't just a good and faithful friend and a loving parent. God is also righteous and just and perfect. So as friendly as we want and loving that we want a God to be, we also want a God who is holy and righteous and just and perfect. And that's why we feel remorse when our actions hurt others, assuming that you're not a sociopath. And even as a child, when, uh, and that's, when we, that's why we feel guilt when we do something wrong. Even as a child, you know when you make a mistake, you break something, you immediately look up to see if anyone noticed, right? 
That continues on into adulthood, except we just become a little more sophisticated in rationalizing our mistakes. But here's the problem. Humans are none of these things that God is, at least to the degree that is worthy of an equal relationship. How do imperfect beings relate to an utterly perfect God? It's hard enough to have an equally contributing uh, relationship between two people, let alone God, when you feel bad about something that you've done or that you should have done. If you live here in D.C., many of you know that we have street sweeping regulations where you can get a ticket if your car is parked on the wrong side of the street during a particular time of the day, during a particular day of the week. In front of my house, it's Wednesdays from 9.30 to 11.30. And when I'm feeling particularly neighborly, I'll text my neighbors if I recognize that their cars are still parked on, uh, on the side during that time so that they can avoid a ticket. So a couple of weeks ago, I saw one neighbor's car parked on the wrong side of the street, on the, on the side of the street that, where they would get a ticket, and I was going to text them to remind them. But it was before the time window, so I said, oh, they'll move it by that time. But then I started working, and then I, by the time I remembered, I looked out and I saw that they got a ticket on their window. I felt so bad. Now I know it's not my responsibility for someone else's car, and there was no expectation for me to remind them, but my heart condemned me for not telling them in time. Now, if I, as a neighbor, feel bad for my inaction, what do you think it might be like for us, imperfect human beings relating to a perfect God, whose very character requires complete loyalty? And you might say, well, Andrew, you're just being too nice. Just embrace your Americanness and just worry about yourself and don't worry about anyone else. What humans, we humans like to appease our consciences by finding ways to abscond our responsibility. But what does John say here in verse 19? He goes, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John doesn't say, as much as we Americans might like to believe, be at rest because, you know, you have individual freedom and rights guaranteed by the Constitution. So don't worry about whether your heart condemns you. Your freedom of conscience is not even about whether you harm others around you. In fact, God's children experience at a rest in conscience because they are both when they are convicted of sin and when they are not. Because God is the one who makes good in this relationship. God is greater than our hearts. God knows everything, and God has done all that is necessary to be done for us to be restored in relationship to God through God's Son, Jesus. You are at rest. You can be at rest because there's nothing more to be done for this relationship to be established and maintained. The only thing that we have to do is to believe that it's true and to live into that truth of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has secured for us in this relationship with a holy, righteous, just, living God. We can stand with assurance in God's presence. Not because of what we've done or how we perform or what we call sin or don't call sin in our lives, but because of what Jesus has performed on the cross and through the grave. When we are at rest as God's children, we know that we have passed from death to life. 
We literally have passed from death to life. We can be at rest in the presence of a holy, righteous, and just God. And therefore, we are at rest to love generously. We don't have to protect ourselves. What is the most tangible form of exclusion? It's not just being unfriended on social media or being canceled by a group of people or being ignored or hated on or being discriminated against. Now, those are all things that we don't wish for ourselves. And followers of Christ should be the first ones to welcome people, even those that we might view as our opponents or our enemies. That's the revolutionary orientation that Jesus uh, conveys in the Beatitudes when he commands his followers to love our enemies. Jesus' followers are at rest as children of God. Don't find they need to retaliate or exclude or to return fire with fire or even to circle up the bandwagons for pe- with people who think more, more like you. We are give, children of God are given the ability to love generously and radically. God's children will reflect a radical love because they know they are at rest from the fear of death. That's the ultimate exclusion punctuated by a chime. That was planned. What's the sign of being at rest from death? He answers, because we love one another in verse 14. We have passed from death to life. We are at rest And a sign of being at rest as God's children is loving one another generously. You know, those who don't know Jesus live in a condition that can only be called death. But that's not true for those who are at rest at being God's children. Jesus' followers have passed clean out of death and they live this life that really is life. And the test of knowing that this has happened to us is that we can truly love our siblings in Christ with generosity. And John keeps coming back to this thought. He reinforces it here with a corresponding negative, saying, you know, if you uh, are God's child, then you will love. But anyone who does not love remains in death. And here, loving one another is not just declarative, where we just say it but don't really do anything about it. Love is putting yourself on the line for the good of others. John continues in, uh, practically in verses 16 and 18, describing what this Christianly love for our siblings looks like. It's coming up on the screen. screen following in Jesus' footsteps in verse 16 means that we lay down our lives for God's family. There's this selfless, self-giving way of life that Jesus' followers are called to. Laying down your life is making space for others, for the sake of others. It's entering into the needs and pains of others rather than raising up walls to keep others out, whether it's for theological integrity or for a sense of safety. It's, and especially raising up walls for other followers of Jesus to be in community with you. Following in Jesus' footsteps is loving in word, but also in deed. Just a comment about what it means to lay down our lives for one another. It's not literally dying for one another. Because imagine a young man who's in love with his fiancée and he says to her, I'm so in love with you. Prove my love for you. I'm going to jump off this cliff. That's dramatic. But it's a ridiculous reading of laying down your life for love. 
It's the ridiculous kind of love, fairy tale love that Prince Charming does for Snow White. Laying down your life in love for selfless, is selfless and sacrificial love that unfolds over time. It's the loving care of, over many years of a spouse who is suffering with dementia. It's the raising of children, and even children with de developmental disabilities, not only in childhood, but into adulthood. It's caring for your aging parents, doing things for them that they were doing for you before you had bladder control. It's enduring in community with those who have very different values from you. And here, it came up on the screen, Tim Keller says this, love is the effort and desire to make someone else everything that they were created to be. Love is the effort and desire to make someone else everything that they were created to be. That's what laying down your life for one another looks like. Just like Russell did for many people over the, his time with us. Love is seeing something in others that they might not be able to see quite yet and committing yourself to them until they are able to see it and realize it. And it's this kind of love that informs the uniquely Christian view of marriage. You know, Christian marriage is not primarily about romance or compatibility or consent or not, not finding a life partner. A Christian marriage does involve commitment between two people suitably compatible and consenting who have, likely have romantic feelings for one another, but for a particular purpose. It's a commitment to one another for the, to help your spouse become all that Jesus has created them to be. It's one tangible way. It's not the only way in human relationships that God has called Jesus' followers to model committed and generous love in laying down your life for the sake of another. You know, those who find themselves at rest as God's children are given incredible resources to be at rest amongst hatred and persecution. They can be at rest in God's presence with our consciences, despite our imperfections. And we can be at rest to love generously without abandon. If you consider yourself as one of God's children, be assured that this kind of rest is made possible and gifted to us in Jesus. And may you live truly at rest as God's children for your joy and to the glory of our God. Amen.